0: this new year. As Susan mentioned, we are starting a new teaching series going through the book of First Peter, and we're going to be spending 10 weeks on it, guys, 10 weeks, which is a long amount of time for us. I heard some excitement from this general area of the room. Uh, and there are a couple other areas of the room. But here's what I want to invite you guys to do is throughout this 10 weeks, would you just dwell in this letter, First Peter? Would you like just kind of marinate on, on some passages, slowly read through it, read through it again and again? Let's just own this time together, savoring this book. It has some specific things that will help us in this moment as Jesus followers in this world. Namely, and the title of our teaching series, Exiles It, it speaks of about Christian identity and Jesus following identity uh, in respect to how, we, how do we differentiate ourselves from the rest of the world? How do we f- understand who we are? And I think the teaching series will be helpful. We're going through just two verses today. Um, and uh, if you have a Bible you can open to it, it's going to be on the screen as always. First verse two verses, chapter one, verse one, and verse two. Peter, An apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. A few years back, I got that DNA test thing, 23andMe. Remember that? Is that still a thing? Is that still a thing? Uh, I, I got it, and then I did the, the, I don't know if you spit or you swab. I don't remember what happened, but some, something from me ended up in this little vial, and we sent it away. It came back, and it was uh, purported to tell me who I was. Uh, Maybe you've done this or one of the other things like it. I've heard funny stories about friends of mine that found out that they had relatives. They did not know they had some as close as a sister. Well, big surprise. Found out we've got a sister that I didn't know about. But it's, uh, it's kind of a phenomenon and maybe it's on the decline, but for a while it was like a big thing. Everybody was doing it. You found out kind of what ethnic kind of makeup you were. Maybe you found out like what health issues you should be aware of and it linked you together with family members that you knew or did not yet know. Many people thinking about this moment and how it became a trend said that it sought to answer a core need that we have that is on short supply in this moment, the question of identity, who we are. It's interesting, we live in a kind of a self-creation moment. You can be whoever you want to be until you can't actually get there and then the limits happen. But, but on the front end, you can be whoever you want to be. We live in a self-creation moment where we're kind of atomized and we get to an individualistic. But still we crave the sense of who we are. We crave an identity that brings us into a larger story. The question of identity. I found out that um, the origins, as I did the research after I did my thing, I found out the origins of my name, Halferty, which is my last name, originally was Ohal Bahartai. So if you could start, start referring to me as Brian Ohal Bahartai. No, I don't. No, don't worry about that. Who am I? It's a question that we seek to answer in counseling offices and classrooms over deep conversations and connections with mentor, mentors and friends. We seek it in solitude. We seek it in community. And here's the thing. Oftentimes, we don't even know we're seeking out that thing. Who am I? Sometimes it's not even on our radar, but we're seeking it out all the same. Who am I? Many seek to answer the question according to economic status or sexual desire or ethnicity, a job or a family, geography. And all of these elements play into the question of who am I, but none of them explain it. None of them answer it. Here's something that I think all of us would do well to know. The world's quest for identity always falls short because it leaves out the one who made the world. The world's quest for identity always falls short because it leaves out the one who made you. Recently, and maybe you've, this was an experience that you had uh, around a Christmas tree, there's just this, just tattered cardboard boxes. Christmas, you know, around 11.30 a.m. You know what I'm talking about? Cardboard boxes and paper. It's before the parents like zoom in to, with the garbage bags to clean everything up. There's this kind of sweet, messy moment. And some of those boxes said Lego on them. Anybody? Am I alone? Okay. And the thing about Legos is that, you know, like oftentimes you look at the box and then sometimes you finish and you have extra pieces and it doesn't quite look like the box. Ever been there? And my son, uh, you know, showed me recently that you don't need the paper booklets anymore. You can just scan a QR code and it's like on mom or dad's phone. And so we were swiping through there and uh, we must have skipped a stage and eventually we got to the point where it should look like it looks like on the box, but some critical elements are missing that, uh, that we apparently forgot to integrate. I blame it on my son. I take no responsibility. This is a little bit what it's like to be on the identity quest, leaving God out of the picture. That there's like we're like putting it together, we're putting it together, we're putting it together, but at the end, there's something critical that's missing that 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 actually keeps it from becoming what it truly is. And we have to go back to square one if we're going to figure out what it was missing. We're gonna figure out how we can get to what like our true destiny and who we truly are: identity. So, in light of this question of identity, Peter gives us some helpful answers. You see, the question of identity was central to the early Jesus followers, and it was central to Peter. It was important to Peter because if you're familiar with the gospel story, you know how many times Peter messed up, how many times Peter failed, and one of the most important things to to have on your mind and in your heart when you mess up is the question or the answer, who am I? Because when you know who you are, you'll know even though you make you make make a misstep or you make a mess here, you know that that mess or that misstep doesn't define who you really are. So the question of identity was important for Peter to have an answer to. But it was important for early Jesus followers. And this is a lot of the reason that Peter is writing to the recipients of this letter in 1 Peter. It listed a whole bunch of different places. And those are different cities in modern day Turkey. And it was called Asia Minor then. And the question of identity was very important for Peter when he was writing in the 60s. Not the 1960s. The original 60s. 60 AD. It was important because the recipients of this letter were experiencing what Peter calls a fiery ordeal, or in other places, a testing of their faith. You see, they weren't being persecuted, but they were being ostracized for their faith. They were being teased, maligned. Maybe they weren't getting the, the, the advancement in their employment or maybe they were being teased by a family member, ostracized by someone in their neighborhood. It was this low-grade social pressure against them for being Jesus' followers. And in light of that, it was important to reaffirm and, and answer the question of who they are because here's the thing. If you are being challenged and you don't know who you are, you will adopt the side of the challenger. Because it's way easier. But if you know who you are and you're being challenged, you will be able to be resilient in the face of that challenge because you know who you are. You know who you are. So right at the beginning, Peter gives us two words that are really descriptions of what it means to be a Jesus follower. For then in the first century and today in the 21st century. The two words that we're going to be looking at today that define what it means to be a Jesus follower is the first is chosen, and the second is exile. Chosen, exile. Together, they define what it means to be a Jesus follower. First, we'll look at chosen. The, The first verse here, it says, to God's elect. It's the first kind of words off the tongue or off the pen of Peter. To God's elect. Elect just simply means chosen. And this word is like a sacred word in the story of God's redemptive plan. It begins really early in Genesis where God chooses a family and a man named Abraham and says, Abraham, you're going to be the one through your family line that brings about the change and transformation to all the world. I'm blessing you so that you might be a blessing. And from the line of Abraham comes the people of Israel, God's chosen people. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 5 to 9, we read this, describing God's chosen people, the people of God, the people of Israel. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, here's the cool thing. This was something describing God's relationship with the people of Israel. But as the redemptive plan goes forward, the people of Israel, really the people of God, expands not just to Jews, but to Jews and Gentiles and all peoples because of what Jesus has done. And so this word written from the perspective of God to Israel actually applies to the ones that Peter is writing to, And that's the reason why he says to God's chosen people, to God's elect, because he's wanting the people that he's writing to to know that they are a part of God's sacred story. But the other cool thing is it also applies to us because you, if you are a Jesus follower, are a person that is the object of God's affection and love. So here's the cool thing. We're gonna look at two things from that passage in Deuteronomy that apply to the ones, the people that Peter is writing to, and also apply to us. The first is this. God calls us his treasured possession. Now think about that. Some of you got some treasured possessions this Christmas. What do you do with those? Do you leave them out willy-nilly? Do you leave them on your front porch for some guy browsing by to pick it up? If it's a car, you know, that you saved up for or, or you went out on a loan and got it, whatever. Do you say, hey, 13-year-old, have fun in the ice and the snow. Good luck out there with my treasured possession. No. You protect it. You honor it. You give it the status that it deserves. And get this, God is calling you. He's calling Israel in the Old Testament He's calling the recipients of Peter's letter in the New Testament. And he's calling us, by extension, as we are all his people, his treasured possession. But even more, he says that he has set his love on you. I love that language of set. Like it's not, it's not leaving. He's set his love on you. Some of us at the beginning of this year, 2022, just need to receive that word and welcome it into our heart and welcome it into our head. Because sometimes we live with a deficit mindset that if I can clear the deficit, then maybe God will love me. Then my friends will accept me. Then I'll be great enough and righteous enough and and have enough merit to accrue enough favor. That's not how God works. As illustrated by the next point god says i didn't choose you because you were more numerous israel i didn't choose you because you were great i didn't choose you because of x y and z and your resume i I chose you because i chose you i chose you even though you were small in number maybe because you were small in number here's how this is good news for us oftentimes we live with what i would call a scarcity mindset with regard to choosing We think about an incident on the playground back in the day when everybody lines up along the wall and there's captains and some people get chosen first and everybody else doesn't get chosen first. And some people don't get chosen or get chosen last. Some of us remember those moments with pain. And so we have an idea of chosenness connected to scarcity. Or some of us, we think about when we hear the word chosen, we think about a particular job that maybe we got or didn't get. And when we, if we got it, that meant other people wasn't, weren't chosen. Or if we didn't get it, it means we weren't chosen. And so we think about chosenness from a scarcity mindset. Some of you might have a dance back in high school or, or middle school, if they still, for some reason, still, still do middle school dances. About if I was chosen or not, but that's not how God uses this word. God doesn't base chosenness on beauty, ability, merit, or more. God bases chosenness from his very character as a loving God, irrespective of works, irrespective of merit, irrespective of beauty or ability. This is what we call in the church grace. Grace, grace, not by works, lest you should boast, but you, every single one of you, you can't do anything about it, but just be okay with the fact that you're loved by God. That doesn't mean that he doesn't have plans for you and it doesn't mean that he wants you to step away from certain destructive habits and and lean towards healthy ones and and follow him with all of your life. But but regardless of you, whether you're at your worst or your best, you are loved equally by God. This is great news. And I think some of us just at the beginning of this year just need to receive that message into our heart and into our head. There is actual brain research, brain science research on, on how we receive compliments and if we are able to receive a compliment or write a compliment off and many of us don't write or don't receive compliments because we don't allow the time to just be present to the words of affirmation we write it off too quickly and so there's actual brain science that you have to sit with three seconds for a compliment and receive and just pay attention okay but uh, but some of you have been there somebody says something kind to you and you're like oh thanks 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 and you move on the brain science says you actually haven't received that. So here's this thing. I want you to actually take three seconds sometime soon and just, rec- just pay attention to this fact that you're loved by God and you can't do anything about it. And just maybe it's just sitting silently on a couch, closing your eyes and, and just kind of being attentive. Like I am loved by God. And just let that message dwell and sit and rest on you. We have been chosen, though, this chosenness, like it goes deeper as Peter unpacks it. It's not just something that connects us to the Old Testament Israel, the people of God, or the New Testament people that Peter's writing to. It's actually, it kind of develops even more as Peter describes it. He says, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ. There's, there's the whole God as described, the triune God, Father, Spirit, and Son. I love it. You're chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father. You're not chosen according to your resume. You're not chosen according to how cool you are. You're not chosen according to your fit, you know, and how dope you look. You're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. He planned it. He knew it. And then it goes on it says you'll be the the, the, the court through the sanctifying work of the spirit. Some of us need to know that the spirit of God is working in your life in ways you don't even know. He's working in ways that you don't even know. The word sanctification is kind of a kind of a top shelf theological word. It just means to be to grow in holiness and wholeness to grow into the image and look more and more like Jesus. So the Spirit of God is working in your life so that you look more and more like Jesus. He's working in ways that you're aware of and ways you're not aware of. Does that mean you have to partner with him? Absolutely. Does that mean he's working in your ways and in your life in ways you don't know about? Absolutely. This chosenness involves the foreknowledge of God, the activity of the Spirit, and, and, and this, the image of Jesus, to be obedient to Jesus Christ. What we see is, is that this, your chosenness is connected to God's redemptive plan that goes all the way back to the Old Testament, up until now. Your chosenness involves this long, big, redemptive plan. It connects you with a bigger story than just this current moment. And your chosenness involves all of the activity of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, working towards building his people, which involves you. How cool is that? All of history, all of God, choosing all of us, which means choosing you. There's another aspect, though, of this identity that's equally important for us to understand. You see, Peter goes on, he goes to God's elect, and he says, exiles dispersed or scattered all over Asia Minor. Um, And this word exile is another word that echoes into the Old Testament. Okay? So the exile, Babylon, or Israel was exiled in Babylon. And Peter is using that not as a geographic uh, metaphor, or not as a geographic situation. He's not, he's not saying that the recipients of his letter are, are actual physical exiles. He's saying that they are, he's using it as a metaphor, saying you are spiritual exiles. What he wants them to understand is this, is that there is a sense where even though you love your home and you, you think it's a great place and the neighborhood you live in is great, there's a sense where this is not yet fully our home. Augustine was famous for saying, among other things, but he said, the Christian is the only person that can go throughout life without a home and yet at home. What does that mean? Well, my mom, she was, she was born in France. She grew up in Canada and then spent the majority of her adult life in the United States. And uh, when she was coming kind of a, of adult age, my grandmother told my mom, now this is all largely from my grandma, my mom kind of denies it. So you're a kind of inside story on the family life of the Halfordies. And my grandma says, yeah, I told her she needed to get her citizenship straightened out and I would help her with it. But because she was born in France, grew up in Canada and her, and had, was living presently in the United States, there were going to be some complications. Well, eventually a point my mom got to where she wanted to travel and she needed a passport. And so she called called the Canadian embassy thinking that, oh, they would help me get the citizenship and passport and get that all figured out. And the Canadian embassy said, well, where were you born? And the French, so the Canadian embassy said, well, because you're born in France, you need to call the French embassy. So my mom called the French embassy and said, hey, so the Canadian embassy sent me to you because I was born in France, even though I grew up in Canada. And the French embassy said something that I wish I could had a spot on a spot-on French accent because it would make it sound so much better. The French embassy told my mom, excuse me, ma'am, but I'm sorry to say that you are from no place. (laughs) (laughs) Don't you just picture that with that French accent. Here's the thing. As you grow into your understanding and your identity of being chosen by God, you will feel increasingly like you don't quite fit in in the world. You will feel like in one sense, you are from no place. Why? Why? Well, the solutions of the, that the world offers will feel like they're always lacking, because you know that true healing only comes when God when God kingdom comes. So there might be solutions like, oh, if we only had more of this or less of this or more of this and less of this and Christians need to labor and work for some of those things, whether it's equality or socioeconomic resources for those that are disadvantaged or, or any number of things, we need to be living for the good and working for those things. But we also know that, that, that if, we don't, if we get more of this, the problem still will be there because God's kingdom needs to come and shalom needs to happen for the, all of the problems to be eradicated and for total healing to happen. And so the solutions lobbed up is only if we could do this, we'll know that really that's not the ultimate solution. And so we'll feel like this isn't quite my home. We'll know also that the problems that the world faces, if someone says, well, this is the end, I guess it's all ending, we'll know that it isn't. Because we'll be drawing strength from an identity and a joy that is stronger than the world. We'll feel like this world is not quite our home. Because the solutions and problems don't answer, the solutions don't answer the world's problems, all the, and the problems are not really the end for us. Our values will come from... Places that from the outside perspective may look liberal in this in this category it might look conservative in this category, but really they're not liberal or conservative. They're just from the teachings and the way of Jesus. They're not from a political ideology. They're just from the life of Jesus and the scripture story. And so, but from the outside perspective, we might not look like we quite fit in to the categories that the world offers us. This world isn't really our home. We're drawing our identity, a chosen but also exiles, both equally important for us to understand who we are. Our aspirations won't be that of the advertising world. They won't be simply, how can I get more, but rather, how can I offer what I have, first to God and then also to others. Chosen exiles. This may feel jarring, as we live in kind of an exile life, as Peter is helping the first century Christians understand, but, and also helping us understand. It might feel jarring, but here's the cool thing. When we live as chosen exiles, we offer the world something that it doesn't already have. Because if we didn't live as kind of a chosen exile, we would only be able to offer the world something that it already has. But when we live as chosen exiles, we give the gift to the world that it really needs. Desmond Tutu is a personal hero of mine. He passed away recently, if you are paying attention to some of those news headlines. He was the Archbishop of Cape Town, a a black South African growing up in apartheid. Um, If you're familiar with what apartheid is, it was a system uh, within South Africa that was basically integrated sin into the very system. It separated black South Africans from white South Africans. It limited the social capital and social mobility of black South Africans and and elevated and put no restrictions on the social capital of of white South Africans. It was written into legal legal policy. And so there were certain places where black South Africans could live and there are certain places that white South Africans can live. Desmond Tutu was an outspoken critic of apartheid growing up within it. In fact, he received the Nobel Peace Prize for his work to end apartheid, doing so as a Jesus follower, as a chosen exile, offering the world something that it didn't already have because of his identity in Christ. One of my favorite stories, Desmond Tutu, was written by an author, and I'll just read it here, describing the actual events before apartheid fell. When the South African government canceled the political rally in the marketplace against apartheid, Bishop Desmond Tutu led the people in a worship service at St. George's Cathedral. The walls were lined with soldiers and riot police, carrying guns and bayonets, ready to close it down. Bishop Tutu began to speak of the evils of the apartheid system, how the rulers and authorities that propped it up were doomed to fail. He pointed a finger at the police along the walls who were there to record his words, you may be powerful. Very powerful, but you are not God, and God cannot be mocked. You have already lost. Then in that moment of silent tension, the bishop seemed to soften, and coming out from behind the pulpit to the center of the chancel, he flashed that radiant tutu smile, and if you know him, you know that smile, and began to bounce up and down with glee. Therefore, he said, since you have already lost, We are inviting you to stay and join the winning side. The crowd roared, the police melted away, and the people began to dance. How does a person with limited social capital and limited social mobility, according to the world system, rise up to be a Nobel laureate standing in the face of such injustice? He knows his identity. He knows that the limits that the world has put on him are not the limits that God has put on him he knows deeply who he is and will not play according to the world's system. And because he's not playing according to the world's script and system, he offers something to the world that the world doesn't already have. A way forward in a challenging time. After apartheid ended, no one knew what to do. There were so many crimes and atrocities committed on both sides of the situation that the little, literal political and legal system did not know how to proceed. Many were crying out for justice, but no one knew what the path forward towards justice was. Bishop Desmond Tutu suggested a way forward. Drawing from the teachings of Jesus about repentance and forgiveness, he spearheaded a system called the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. You only needed to come forward and honestly own before the committee and those you harmed the crimes you committed, and you were granted forgiveness and, and it set down a reconciliation process. This was the way forward that Desmond Tutu led. It was not created or offered by the world's resources. It was drawn right from the teachings of Jesus by Desmond Tutu. And so oftentimes, as people came forward, weeping over the atrocities that they've been implicated in, in the Perils and pain of apartheid, the people would receive forgiveness from the ones that they, that were victims, and the whole crowd would erupt into amazing grace, singing about the amazing grace that meets us all when we were sinners. When you know that you are a chosen exile, you don't let the world set the identity limits on who you are, and you offer the world the way of Jesus that it desperately needs. I can't think of something more critical at this moment for Jesus' followers. Over the last two years, we've seen enough Jesus' followers be argumentative and polarizing, if I can say that. We need more Desmond Tutus. I recognize that not all of us will be up against the evils of an apartheid system. If one of you ends up there, let me know. I'll come to your side. But we all in our own spaces get to embrace this identity of being a chosen exile so that we all in our own spaces get to offer something that the world desperately needs and it doesn't have. The life, activity, and way of Jesus Christ. Some of this means hard work for you. As you think about what it looks like to live out your identity and all the spaces that you inhabit. And you have to think through that, journey through that. But I will say this, the one thing that you can do is simply settle the matter of who you are. The way Desmond Tutu went forward was he knew who he was. The invitation you extended this morning is, do you know who you are? Will you embrace this identity as a chosen exile? That is the opportunity before you. Worship team, can come up. I want to. I want to provide three uh, practical steps um, that can aid us in our journey of settling the matter of identity. And the first is this: um, simply including this breath prayer into your life. Now, a breath prayer is simply something you say the first part and you are inhaling and then you say the second part, you're exhaling. So this is a breath prayer you might choose to integrate into your life. It's very simple. It's easy to remember. I am chosen and this is not my home. You might say it in a line when you're feeling irritated and you're like looking at the person ahead of you. Why are they taking so long? I'm chosen. This is not my home. You might say it as as a neighbor is doing something annoying and you've had plenty of conversations over the fence and in person and through text about how they should stop doing that thing that's annoying because it's annoying to the whole neighborhood. I'm chosen. This is not my home. You might say it as in the middle of your own home, there's a challenging conversation and you're tempted to lash out in reaction and you might say, I'm chosen. This is not my home. Integrate that prayer, that simple breath prayer into your life. Second, pick up this booklet before you leave, or download it from our website. There's a link actually in our our Instagram account. It's also in the Anchor Weekly. If you haven't got that, you can stop by the info table and sign up for that weekly email. Get this, we're all doing this as an Anchor community together. 21 days of prayer. We're going to be journeying through the Psalms of Ascent. They're psalms that were sung by Israel as they journeyed journeyed towards Jerusalem. We're going to be journeying together and praying together through this. There's some psalms to read, there's uh, prayer to pray, there's some space for journaling, and there's something to fast from. It's all in there, next 21 days, let's do it together. And in so doing, deepen our identity as chosen exiles. And last, the ultimate way forward, the real step is to know at the center of who you are, the first chosen exile, Jesus Christ. Scripture says that Jesus was chosen by God, chosen to bear the weight of the world's brokenness that we couldn't carry. He was chosen. But in another sense, he was an exile. He lived far from the perfect communion that he endured and enjoyed for eternity past as he was born, letting down the royal robes and taking up the squalor and vulnerability of a child. But then living, Experiencing all the pain and some of the joy that we experience, but ultimately experiencing pain far more than we could imagine when he took the full weight of the world's brokenness on his shoulders so we didn't have to carry it on ours. He was chosen, and he was in exile. And he led the way for us. We don't have to bushwhack our way forward. We simply have to follow the one who has already made a path. And that's what we celebrate at the communion table. Jesus, with his disciples, he said, as long as you gather together, do this in remembrance of me. He took the bread and he broke it and he said, uh, "You know, this is my body given for you for the forgiveness of sins. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood. It's shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. It's not according to the resume. It's not according to the accolades. It's according to what I have done. So when we take the cup and we take the bread, we're reminded of that, the ultimate source of our identity. It's gluten-free there by the uh, sound booths. And take advantage of that. Take some time. There's also prayer. The sides behind those black walls. We don't want anyone to leave without receiving prayer for what they need. This is a safe place. Come forward. Receive prayer. Take some time. Sing this song. And be reminded that you are chosen and we are all also not quite home. So we're chosen exiles. Let me pray for us real quick. Spirit of God, would you come in this place? To those that are doubting, remind us of your goodness and your power. For those that are convicted, remind us of your comfort. For those that are headlong pursuing you, be an encouragement. Spirit of God, come in this place, we ask, in the powerful name of Jesus.